0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Thank you all very much. Please take your Bible and if you've lost your place, at Psalm 138, with which we began our time of worship today, I ask you to find it again. And we're going to be looking at this psalm which is ascribed to David. We don't know for sure what the background of the psalm was. Every psalm has a background, a context. Historically, something is going on in the mind and heart of the human author, and the Holy Spirit works in that person to give us these 150 psalms which make up the Psalter, as it is called. And I have never taught from this before. And it's always been overshadowed, actually, in my own consciousness by the psalm which follows it, which happens to be my favorite psalm of all, Psalm 139. But today, we're going to take a look at this in depth. And we're going to make an educated guess as to what the historical context of it, was and remains. During World War II, there was a final great battle which was waged in Europe. The victor would take control and win the war. The Allied forces of which our nation was a part won that victory. It was a bloody, bloody, long, protracted time of battling. I lost a member of my own family during that war on Christmas Day of 1944. So the story is told, whether it's simply an apocryphal story or something that really happened, I cannot say. There were two GIs who were foxhole mates. You know the old saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. And these particular soldiers were talking about their own spiritual experiences. One was raised and was an avid Roman Catholic. The other was from the backwoods of the South somewhere and he was a Baptist. And they were talking about their beliefs. As they were deep in the conversation, all of a sudden the silence around them was shattered by a mortal round, mortar round that hit probably 30, 40 meters away. And immediately, of course, they ducked in the hole. And the barrage continued. When it ended, they came out unscathed. But during this attack, the Catholic glanced over at his foxhole mate, the Baptist, and noticed that he was doing this. And he didn't say anything to him at the moment, but after everything settled down, he said, I thought you said you were Baptist. He said, I did, just in case you're right. <laughs> he was covering all the bases this boy was. And probably if we were in the foxhole, we might be doing likewise. As far as we know, David never lived any of his life in a foxhole, but he did live a lot of his life in caves. After he won this mighty victory that's recorded in the book of 1 Samuel 17 over Goliath, it's a great story, isn't it? We tell our children this and they always just sort of listen with great interest and I still do too. But soon after, he was hailed as the coming Savior of Israel because of that feat, the bottom fell out of his life. Because the man whom he really admired, the man whom he knew was God's anointed, the man named Saul, became extremely jealous. And as we read from 2 Samuel chapter 5, we read how this man, David, had ascended to the throne after the death of Saul. And I'm sure he thought, wow, finally. For over 10 years, he had been pursued as a fugitive by the king. He had two opportunities at least to kill Saul. But in deference to the fact that he was the man whom God had picked for that moment to be king, he refused to do that. He was encouraged by his right-hand men to do that. But he didn't do it. After the death of Saul, the Bible says that David actually extolled Saul. And he wept particularly over the death of Jonathan, his son, who was David's best friend. You know that story. So he probably was saying, things are finally going to settle down for me. Do you feel that way sometimes when your life has been under attack? Do you feel, wow, things kind of calm down? You think, finally. Well, David probably was having one of those moments. And then the Philistines heard that he had become the king. And what did they do? Did they go to pay homage to this new monarch? To the contrary, they mustered their forces and they went down into a region around the Dead Sea called the Valley of Rephaim. David went to the stronghold. And that stronghold is a name for the place that he had hidden out from Saul year after year after year as he was sought by the king to do him in. And now, in that same region, the Philistines were amassing their army. And they were formidable foes. They were great warriors. And David was there. When he was there, we read how he asked the Lord, Lord, would you want me to go up and fight the Philistines? And then the Lord said, yes, and he said to him, don't worry, you're going to come through this battle of victor. And then we know what happened. God's promise came true. And then, as almost an afterthought, Samuel writes these words in the last verse, the 21st verse of the text. Did you notice? It said, David and his men took the idols of the Philistines and took them back to where they were. Hold that thought in your mind as we look at this psalm, which serves as the background, I believe, of that event. And in this psalm, we see that David gained a fresh perspective on three different matters. He, first and foremost, gained a perspective that was fresh on the nature of God. We're going to look at that in detail in verses 1 through 3. Secondly, he gained a fresh perspective on the future of the world. We'll spend less time evaluating that in verses 4 through 6. And then lastly, he gained a fresh perspective on his own personal security, which by association with him and association with this piece of the Word of God, we too can gain all three of the perspectives, and we need to if we're going to fulfill our intended purpose here on earth. Let's look now at verse 1 and following in Psalm 138 to look at the fresh perspective he gave God on the nature of God. He says, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you. Before the gods. Thanking the Lord. We're in that Thanksgiving season, aren't we? we are, we're caused to really pause and think about things for which we should be grateful. There's never a moment we're going to see later today, hopefully I remember, that it's improper for us to be in a mode of thanksgiving. And then also praising too. Have you ever wondered what the difference is between thanking God In praising God? Does that ever confuse you? Well, let me share this with you. Thanking God is thanking Him for what He's done for you. David had a lot to be grateful to the Lord for, didn't he? To thank Him, this great victory He was given, and the peace that followed in the wake of that great victory. He wanted to praise the Lord. And he wanted to praise Him before The gods of the Philistines. To praise God is to praise Him for who He is, what His nature is, what His name means. And I don't have to tell most of you this, but biblically speaking, when the Scripture talks about the name of God or the name of Jesus, the name of an individual, it's not just giving us a means whereby we can identify that person when we see the person or call out to that person. But it's more about the character of the person. The nature of that person. He says here, I will sing praises to you before the gods. Now, I asked you to hold that thought about David and his men gathering up all the idols of the Philistines and taking them away. I would have expected if I had been writing the script that they would have destroyed all those idols, wouldn't you? Burned them up. Buried them, something like that. So, reading that, I really never thought about it until I was caused to look at this psalm more carefully, being the background of that event. This is certainly my imagination, I hope it's sanctified imagination, that David probably more than one time, at least one time, lined all those idols up and he began to sing, sing praises. To God, And he knew there were no gods in those idols. But we know from 1 Corinthians 10 that the Word of God teaches us that there can be demons behind idols. And there's nothing that frustrates and bothers Satan and his many demons than when God's people are praising him. Did you know that? Psalm 22, verse 3 tells us that the Lord is enthroned on the praises of His people. Whenever Israel praised God, He was enthroned. Where Jesus Christ is extolled as God and King, He is pleased with that and Satan is bothered immensely. Martin Luther, the great reformer, had several encounters with Satan. He once was said to have picked up an inkwell in his study and thrown it at the devil in the presence of some of his friends. Nobody else could see Satan, but he evidently could. He believed in the reality of Satan. We sang in the early worship service today, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a great hymn showed great understanding on the part of Martin Luther about the battle in which we find ourselves and how we are victorious over the Lord. This is what Luther would say to his comrades when they were sensing the heavy influence of the enemy. He said, come now, let us sing a hymn and spite the devil. When we praise the Lord privately, just on our own, and it's always appropriate to do that, when we come in a, group like, in a group like this and we praise God together, in the early church service, I sense that today. When we started, it was rather humdrum. As we moved through and we began to continue, I could sense we were worshiping the Lord through song. God was praised. God was honored. One of the things we do come together for is for such moments. Just like we had... Earlier in this worship service, when we were worshiping the Lord, it's not about enjoying the music. It's okay to enjoy music. But the whole purpose of praise, we're enjoying the Lord. We're worshiping the Lord. And when he is worshiped, Satan's fangs are ripped right out of his mouth. He cannot accomplish what he would like to accomplish. It's always appropriate, isn't it, to thank God with a whole heart and to sing praises to him before the false gods around us. Verse 2 says, I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. There was no temple at this time in David's life. And that has caused scholars to say, this couldn't be a Psalm of David. There was no temple yet. But what those scholars refused to take notice of is that there was a tabernacle. And the tabernacle had the properties of the temple with the difference that it was not in one place. It was a tent, and the dimensions of it and the structure of it were really a pattern for what would happen in the building of the temple. In 1 Samuel one twenty-four, before there was a temple, before... David comes on the scene. He was not even born. And the scripture talks about how the temple was a place where people worshipped. In 1 Samuel one twenty four, and it was speaking of the tabernacle. So, I will bow down toward the holy temple. And David knew what he was talking about. He knew there was no temple. He did know there was a tabernacle where God had established a place for atonement for sin annually, Yom Kippur and other sacrifices led by the tribe of Levi and the priests associated with those responsibilities. And as he bowed down toward the holy temple, he gave thanks again, this time to the name of God and two of the names of God, loving kindness and truth. The word loving kindness is the unique word In the Bible, really. Which when you put that term in its proper place, what it conveys is both mercy and grace. Jesus Christ was full of truth and remains full of it and grace. When he was incarnated in human flesh, he was full of grace and truth. And let me go ahead and say it before I forget it. And of his fullness we have all received. If you know Christ, Christ dwells in you. And all of His fullness is in you, at least potentially. It remains to be seen as to how we will respond to that knowledge in humility and embrace who He is and embrace who we are because of His presence, the presence of Christ in our lives. Loving kindness. What a name. If we took time, we could go to the book of Lamentations, that five-chapter book that ends, really, and it circulated when it was first published with the book of Jeremiah, the prophet, and Jeremiah was the human author of Lamentations. Have you ever stopped to think how in that book of Lamentations, which describes all the atrocities, the horrible things which were happening inside the walls of Jerusalem. And he talked about women who were cannibalizing their children. Children who were dying because their mother's milk had dried up. All kinds of horrible things were happening. And on the outside of the city was this horde of pagans, Babylonians, and Their fate inside the city was inevitable. They knew that they were going to be destroyed unless God intervened. And God didn't because He'd given them another plan through Jeremiah and they refused. And as Jeremiah thought about that and he pondered it, he wept in the first two chapters. And then halfway through the third chapters, he finds another gear in his life. And he begins to worship the Lord. He says, your faithfulness and your mercies are new every morning. Do you know you may be in a storm? Certainly not as severe as those in Jerusalem found themselves when God gave them this Word. But you may be in a storm and you can find another level of relating to God, especially when you begin to praise Him for those things that do not beg praise but a curse because life is so difficult due to those circumstances in your life but David gave thanks to the name loving kindness in God his mercy and his grace and also he says truth the word truth means at least means that and faithfulness if we are faithless do you know what the Bible says in the book of 2nd Timothy If we are faithless as His followers, as children of God, He remains faithful. Why? Because He cannot deny Himself. Aren't you glad that our God is a faithful God? Aren't you glad that His mercies are new every morning? Aren't you glad that when you and I wake up every day, we can join David in giving thanks to the Lord and thanking God for His name of faithfulness his name of loving kindness does a lot for us, not just psychologically. It's not some kind of game we play with ourselves to try to pep ourselves up. It's real because we have a real God and when we begin to worship Him. He invades our space because He is enthroned on the praises of His people. And where He is, Satan can have no influence in that situation. He goes on to say in the last part of verse 2, for you have magnified your word according to all your name. The term word here could equally well and perhaps ought to be translated by the word promise. You have magnified your promise according to all your name. He had in mind, I'm sure, the promise which God had given him that's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 5, that God was going to give him victory. Now, David was a brilliant man. He was a brave man, unbelievable. A man of great faith, but he was still a man. And I would imagine there was not a battle he undertook without butterflies. It was tough going to war. Some of you men have been to war. Maybe some of you women have been to war. It's a horrible thing, which... General Sherman, the leader of the forces that really brought the Civil War to a conclusion, said war is hell. That is true, isn't it? And he knew that. He knew he was putting his life on the line. And there probably were some doubts that came into his mind, planted by the enemy. You can't believe God's word. Have you ever had some of those doubts enter your mind? You can't believe God's word. Has the devil been active in history in trying to debunk the Bible? He began right off the bat, didn't he? With Eve, when Eve said to the serpent in whom the devil dwelled, she said, God said, if we eat of this tree that you're suggesting we eat of, the tree, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we will die. And then the devil so smoothly, can you hear him right now? Surely you won't die. Right out of the box, Satan is downgrading the Word of God, casting aspersions upon God's Word. But God has given us His Word, and it's based on His character. It's based on His name. And it's based on His promises. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, listen to this. And if you can get there quickly enough... You'll want to look at it. You perhaps have read it. I think of it frequently. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to His people Israel. Oh, thank God that David experienced that rest after defeating the Philistines. According to all that he promised, not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant. That would be the law of Moses. First five books of the Bible. To this day, no promise that God has given has met with failure because of who God is. He's not a man that he should lie, the Bible says. He's not a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken, Will he promised rather, and will he not fulfill it? Thank God for his promises. Do you mine the Bible for promises? There's more to Bible reading than just finding promises from God's Word. Certainly. What we need to do, though, is as we read the Bible for fellowship and instruction, there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible. And God will, if you look for help from Him, He will promise help that you need. We're going to look at one such before This message is over today. It'll help you, I believe. Verse 3. On the day I called, you did answer me. Sometimes we pray and we don't get our answer, do we? God makes a promise and we don't get it right away. Think about Abraham and Sarah. God gave them a promise. How long did it take for it to come to pass? 25 years. Whoa, dude, that's a long time, isn't it? Long time. God gave Joseph a promise. I think his was harder to take because he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was described at, to those brothers and his father as having been killed by a wild animal, and he was gone as far as the family was concerned. For, if you calculate, over 20 years, he waited, the Bible says. He waited. Do you know what he was waiting on? For the promise that God had made to him that he would be the leader of his family. And the Bible says that that word from the Lord, that promise that he was so sure of, that came in the form of true dreams, he was so sure of. It's the thing which got him in trouble with his brothers. It was a thing that caused them to send him away as a slave. That was like, it says, a chain around his neck. And the word neck, until the Word of God, the promise came to pass. It says it was around his neck. And the word for neck, literally, it's not neck. In Hebrew, it's the word nephesh, which means soul, around his soul. Some of you have gotten a promise from the Lord. It's been months. It's been years. For some of you it's been decades, but don't give up. Don't give up on the faithfulness of God. Don't give up on the fact that he cannot lie. If he promised, cling tenaciously to it and what will happen to you, the same thing which happened to Abraham, the same thing which happened to Joseph, you will find greater intimacy than you would have if he had fulfilled it like that. Because you'll keep coming to Him and you'll wrestle with Him and you'll be angry at God at times and you think, you don't love me, Lord. I believe you love everybody else. You don't love me because you've tricked me. Not so. Be a man or a woman who waits on the Lord. And look at what happened when God did fulfill His promise to David. The last part of verse 3. You did make me bold with strength in my soul. When we see God work like David saw God work, it was spectacular for sure. But even in the little things, doesn't it embolden you in your soul? Doesn't it strengthen you internally? David received a fresh perspective on God's nature. If we seek the Lord while He may be found, call on Him while He is near. If we seek Him, Amos conveys this message, seek the Lord and you will live. Life is to be found in knowing God. We have to seek Him and His promises, claim His promises. Become a woman of God who looks into the Word, looks at the promises, believes what God says. Trust Him. Do not give in to the suggestion of Satan that God really is not interested in you. The second area is David had a fresh perspective of the future. Look at verse 4. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, When they have heard the words, it's the word promises, of your mouth. Stop here just a moment. Is it possible? Is it even probable that the Holy Spirit gave David a vision of what we call the millennium? You remember what Paul writes about Jesus? Though... Being in very nature God, he did not consider equality something to be grasped. But he took on the form of a slave. And he humbled himself and became obedient to God, even to the point of dying, no ordinary death, dying on a cross, which was the utmost humiliation, not to mention physical destruction of a Jew especially. And then he said, because of this, because of his obedience, God gave Jesus the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue confess, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, all beings, evil and good, all beings will bow the knee, and they will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you think David envisioned that? There's no way for us to know, but it certainly sounds like that, doesn't it? And all the kings of the earth, all the people will give praise to the Lord. They wouldn't do it in this lifetime, but they will be forced to do it. And if you've had reluctance to give thanks to the Lord, if you've been skeptical about God, you've got a bone to pick with Him, you're not going to win that battle. Give your life to the Lord. Get a head start and be ready when Christ comes again or you die when you meet the Lord. Verse 5, he goes on to say about the future. They, this would be the kings, and by association, their kingdoms, will sing of the ways of the Lord, the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. Remember what is the purpose of every human being created in the image of God? What is the purpose? To glorify the Lord. That's our purpose. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. Isn't this wonderful to think about our Lord, the King of Kings, that he gives special attention to the lowly? God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. The haughty, he goes on to write in verse 6. That means high-minded, proud. The Lord knows from afar. No relationship. There's no truck that God has with prideful people. And we all have a prideful streak in us. And when it emerges, what we need to do is acknowledge what it is and say no to yourself. And take up the passage that I mentioned earlier, the longer passage includes these verses from Philippians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. That is the true believer. We're just following in the same footsteps that Christ walked. Here's the last part. First part, fresh perspective on the nature of God, the name of God. Second part, fresh perspective on the future. The Lord's going to reign. There'll be no question as to who the sovereign is. It will be none other than Jesus Christ when He comes again. But now He talks about His own personal security. Verse 7 says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, He had had a history of that, hadn't He? Ever since He was probably 20 years old, 10 years, this period of walking in trouble, you will revive me. In the book of Psalm 143, if you're there nearby, just turn over. Look at the last three verses of Psalm 143. David is the human author. He says, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. The same words used here. Renew me is the idea. Give me fresh life. That's what happens when people come to Christ, isn't it? Therefore, if any person is in Christ, that person is a new creation, the Bible tells us. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. God did bring David's soul out of trouble, didn't he? We've seen that. And in your loving kindness, there's that word again, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant. David was revived by the Lord to do the will of God. He goes on to write in verse 7 in the middle of it, you will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. I'm Fond of the words of the Bible because ideas are comprised of words. You can't have ideas that are proper with, and have ideas that aren't, or vice versa. The right hand. I don't know if you've ever considered in your reading of the Bible, for the last two or three times I've read through the Bible, I've sought to, in the margin, write down right hand. We don't have time for me to go into all of those. I'm going to mention one of them where God speaks of His right hand, I believe you'll be blessed by. It's found in Isaiah 41.10. And this is what God says to the prophet. He says, on behalf of God, He says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. Surely I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you, the RSV Bible says, with my victorious right hand. Where are we who know the Lord right now? We're in this building, I know that, in El Paso, Texas. But where we are is, the Bible says in the book of Ephesians, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. We've been blessed with every spiritual Blessing in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus. We're in Christ. And more specifically, we're in His hand. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish. No one shall take them out of my hand. The right hand of God will save us. Satan wants to destroy us. The Savior saves us. And He cannot let go of us by His own promise in the Word of God. All that the Father gives to me, He says, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never throw away. There are no throwaway people in the kingdom of God. God cares so much about us. And this word save is a word which was used by David elsewhere when he talks about In the 18th chapter, he talks about how God took him from a place of great stress and restriction and put him into what is described as a broad place. And uses this idea of putting him in that place of salvation. Do you feel cramped by life? Do you almost suffocate sometimes in your soul because of the pressures that come to bear on your life? Look. Remember, if you know Christ, keep reminding yourself you are in His right hand. It's the place of ultimate personal security. Satan cannot take you away from Him. And praise Him in that position in which you find yourself. Thank Him. Reflect on His promises. Claim His promises. Verse 8 goes on to say, The Lord will accomplish what concerns me Love, his, your loving kindness, O oh Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Let me talk about that first part. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. The English Standard Version, many of you read, it's a great version. That version says, The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Do you know that's true of you if you know Christ? Do you know He has a purpose for you? We've seen the broad purpose to glorify Him. We know that. He says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare, not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. If you're still over there in Psalm 138, look at Psalm 139. Verse 16, Your eyes have seen My unformed substance, And in your book, they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Is David alone, one among billions? The only one whose future was mapped out before he was born? No. God had a plan that resulted in your conception For you and for me. We want to know what that plan is. Do you ever say, Lord, Lord, just show me what to do and I'll do it. Well, sometimes the Lord is a little bit slow showing it, but he will. He likes that attitude. I want to know why I'm here, Lord. Show me how to do it. Please do. Well, I'm going to give you some things that the Lord, as I've thought about in preparation for this message, how... I can be in line with God's purpose, His will for my life. Probably you would say some of these same things and you'll have things to add to it. This is just prescriptive. It's not exhaustive. And listen to what the Word of God says about our relationship to our purpose seen in our following through in the will of God. Romans 12:1 says, I beseech you therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies to God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to Him, so that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That's the purpose of God, the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. What am I to do? Here's the beginning point. I present my body as a living sacrifice. The Old Testament background of that image which Paul borrows from the Old Testament, is the image of burnt offerings. We know about sin offerings, offerings to atone for sin, peace offerings to show the Lord we wanted to be at peace with Him if we had lived under the umbrella of the law of Moses. But burnt offerings were offerings which indicated a renewal of commitment, an understanding that we by God's Word, are best able to fulfill our purpose by beginning with surrendering our lives to Him. Holding nothing back. A living sacrifice. Those words don't even go together, do they? Because in the Old Testament sacrificial system, when some animal was sacrificed, it died. We know Jesus died. He being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's the second thing. Living sacrifice. Hope you have a picture of that. Full surrender to the Lord. John 15, verse 5 says, Jesus says this. Earlier He said, I am the true vine and My Father is the vine dresser. And then He goes on to describe how we who know Christ are branches in the vine. And it's our responsibility, He says in verse 5, if you abide in Me and I abide in you, You shall bear much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. I am the vine, you are the branches. He or she who abides in me, and I in him or her, that person will bear much fruit. What does that mean? It means the fruit of the Spirit, of course, will have the character of God. God is loving and joyful and peaceful and all the other things that are included there. And we begin to take on a resemblance to the One who has come to live in us as we surrender to the Lord, and then we abide in Him. Just like the nature of a grapevine flows through the branches and fruit is born. But it's more than that. It's more than just the character of God. Invariably, wherever Jesus showed up, people got saved, didn't they? They were saved physically. And more importantly, they were saved spiritually. They were fixed up so they could live as God had intended for them to live in the first place on earth, being salt and light, but then when the end of their lives came in this world, they would go to be with Him in heaven. Bearing fruit. Here's the third category. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, God says, "'Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, because I am the Lord your God.'" Consecrate means sanctify yourselves. That's another word we don't use very often, so let me simplify that. Sanctify means set yourself apart for God's use. We were created for God's use. We give glory to God when we find out what our purpose is, and it begins with becoming living sacrifices, depending entirely on the Lord. That's what abiding in Him means, remembering that apart from Him we can do nothing. And then we have a part to play. God is the one who will fulfill His purpose for us. He puts in our minds, in our hearts, and then He implants His Spirit in our lives. And He animates us to do what God wants us to do. We're not on our own. We trust the Lord. We have that possibility. But what we know is we have to participate. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to act according to His good pleasure. And that statement in Philippians 2, 12, and 13 echoes this Leviticus passage. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. And he goes on to say after He says to those people and Holy Spirit says that to us by saying, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus says this, we are sanctified by the truth of the Word of God. We will never realize our purpose apart from reading this book. Not as a good luck charm or some kind of religious activity, but understanding what Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which comes from the mouth of God. This is not for preachers only. It's for me, believe me. I cannot go forward. It's not because I have a responsibility. I I won't be preaching all my life. could be my last sermon as far as I know. But what I do know is if I never give a formal talk about Christ again, I still need to be in this book because it's where I find an opportunity to fellowship with God. And it's where I get direction from God. It's where I get promises from God. The Word of God. Jesus says this after he says, Sanctify them by your truth, O Lord, your word is truth. He goes on to say this For their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. There are people around us. There are children in your home. There are husbands and wives in your home. There are parents in your life. There are grandparents. There are grandchildren. There are all kinds of people, neighbors these people, the Lord didn't put you in their lives accidentally. We're there on purpose. We are rubbing shoulders every day with people. And we have the truth. And we know the truth is Jesus. And we know He says, if you abide in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. God will use you and me in our freedom in our walk with Christ to help others get set free. We had a lady last night come up and she introduced me to a younger lady. She brought to church and she said, calling this young lady's name, she prayed to receive Christ yesterday and she wanted to come with me tonight. And would you talk to her about baptism? And I said, yes, I talked to her. Took her up here to the baptistry, explained what we believe about baptism She comes from a different background. She's going to be baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. It's awesome. And it was because one woman made it her heart and her life to abide in Christ. Branch and vine. Remember? Depend on the Christ. And guess what happened? Some fruit was born. Praise the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Bible says that we by doing good. We, by doing good, do the will of God and we will silence the ignorance of people who don't know God. We don't have to get in a fight with somebody, try to talk them out of their misunderstanding. We're always to be ready to give an answer to those who ask us regarding the hope that's in us, but we're to love them and we're to share the gospel. It's the power of God, right? for the salvation of everyone who believes, certainly. And we do good. This echoes what Paul writes in Ephesians two ten. after he said, we're saved by grace through faith, that not ourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Then he says, let your light shine before men, Jesus does, and let them see your good works, and so glorify me. And then Paul concludes that little section in Ephesians 2 by saying, for you are God's workmanship. He really includes himself. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now get the last part. I am guilty of not having given much attention to that when I've been talking about this verse. Which was, were prepared in advance for us to do. In his book, the days of your life were written... And that script is a script of doing good works, which glorify the Lord. This is our purpose in life. Well, let's go quickly. I'm going to skip one of the things, but this is the last thing we're going to look at. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of 1 Peter, verses 10 and 11. And this is the last thing. Listen carefully. Exercise your spiritual gift to build up the body of Christ and to bring glory to God. 1 Peter 4, verse 11, Whoever speaks, let him speak, and is speaking as a speaking gift given by the Holy Spirit. The utterances of God, whoever serves, this word means ministers, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies. What strength might that be? Be the strength of the Holy Spirit of God, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In the book of Colossians, chapter 4, the 17th verse, we're introduced to a man, and you probably wouldn't know the name. I really didn't. I've read it a hundred times, probably, and it just kind of went in one ear and out the other. Archipus is his name. And this is what Paul writes to Archippus. Be sure to fulfill the ministry which God has given you to do. Wow. I looked in my Bible, and two years ago, last July, one year ago, rather, I had marked that. God was speaking to me. Hey, dude, as long as you're around, you keep making disciples of people maybe one-to-one, may not ever be to talk a large group. Don't worry about that. There are plenty of people who need a personal touch. Aren't there? And do you know that you are... My job and the other pastors in this church, our job primarily is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says... and. Christ gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints that would be believers for the work of service. And by the way, the word service is the word that's ministries. Diakonia is the word. For the work of service, I have a responsibility. Pastor Sam has a responsibility All the other pastors and elders have this responsibility. People with gifts of teaching in the body have this. What are we to do? We're to equip the saints for work of ministry, the spiritual gifts. Find out what your spiritual gift is. Periodically, we offer a spiritual gifts conference. Take advantage of those, but you don't have to wait until that's offered. Go to Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Peter 4. Easy to remember, Romans comes before 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in both books. If you don't get any more than that, you'll be on the way to discovering your gift. And once you understand it, begin to operate it. If you really love and walk with the Lord as a living sacrifice, you're depending upon Him, you're going to be doing that. You don't have to know the name of what your gift is. Because it will be the life of Christ in you, exercising that Three. Well, David died. And from the time that we read about him in 2 Samuel 5 until he died, he messed up a lot, didn't he? He messed up a lot. But God used him. I'm not saying go out and mess up a lot. (laughs) Mm -mm. I'm just saying walk with the Lord. And when you do mess up, don't delay getting right with God. Offer yourself again as a living sacrifice. Say, Lord, take over. Please, Lord, forgive me and make me right with you. And in the book of Acts, we have the final word on David. It says, God accomplished what David's purpose for him was. All of it. In his own generation. When David... Finished his purpose. He fell asleep. As long as you and I are drawing breath, we need to be mindful that we still are on mission. Praise the Lord. Amen. God bless you. Hope you have a great week this week. Fulfilling your purpose.